Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. The current gatekeepers to the Holocaust narrative are essentially rendering the Holocaust irrelevant to history. Hmm. And that is a crime. I accuse them of disrespecting the wishes, the very last wishes of the victims. The victims wanted the world to remember, not just to remember without learning a lesson, but rather to remember so that it never happens again. That, of course, is the one and only Vera Sharav. She is part of the last generation of Holocaust survivors, a tireless advocate for medical freedom, and a fierce opponent of tyranny everywhere. You'll hear my conversation with Vera right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. And I'm here with Vera Sharav. Vera, welcome to Post Woke. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really glad you were able to make time to be here. And I really look forward to hearing what you have to say and learning from it. And to sort of jump us in, I, I want to pick out a section that you of your speech at the 75th commemoration of Nuremberg last August. And amongst many thought-provoking and urgent ideas, you said this, quote, the purpose of Holocaust memorials is to warn and inform future generations about how an enlightened civilized society can be transformed into a genocidal universe ruled by absolute moral depravity. If we are to avert another Holocaust, we must identify ominous current parallels before they poison the fabric of society, close quote. Now, as you well know, for many decades, comments like this can be harshly judged, um, for example, by the Jewish community. And so mm -hmm. their comments like this are viewed in many ways as a heresy of sorts. It's as if no one is ever allowed to ever compare anything to the Holocaust. So Vera, as part of the last generation of Holocaust survivors, what kind of response do you get to the decades of work and commentary that you've done to expose and call out what you label the global heirs of the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, this is, uh, at this time, this has to be confronted because the current gatekeepers to the Holocaust narrative are essentially rendering the Holocaust irrelevant to history. Hmm. And that is a crime. I accuse them of disrespecting the wishes, the very last wishes of the victims. The victims wanted the world to remember, not just to remember without learning a lesson, but rather to remember so that it never happens again. And the way to prevent that from happening is to alert and to be alert to signals signs, ominous signs that are reminiscent of the lead-up to the final solution. That lead-up 
took years. Hitler ascended power in January 1933. The final solution didn't really start until 41, 1941. That's a long time. Yes. And so as you, I mean, I couldn't agree more with you, but as you share this, what sounds to my ears, an urgent and very logical approach to this, um, do you get pushback even from fellow survivors, from family members, from, from like, how do you manage um, sticking to this powerful mission and also just the, the sheer personal emotional aspect of having people who have so much in common with you perhaps being just outraged that you dare make these comparisons? Uh, the ones I would say who show outrage weren't there. Mm. Okay? They presume to speak for those who were there. They do not. The very fact that Holocaust memorials all over the world uh, refused entry to Holocaust survivors who could not show the green passport, that's an outrage. That's an absolute outrage. And that happened in the United States, in Germany, and in Israel. Wow. Yeah. And just for context, in case anyone isn't sure, that's related to the their vaccination status. Um, so, all right. Now, when we were emailing before we got to actually chat, I knew that you've been you know, I hope to. I hope we can get into your organization that you formed and all the work you've done long before COVID became um, part of our everyday life. But I said to myself, this is a woman who's probably done countless interviews and been asked countless questions. But I wanted you to tell me if there was a question that you feel like you haven't been specifically asked. And if so, I would happily be the one to ask that. So I am now going to do that. I'm going to share, I'm going to ask you the question that you kind of implied that you wanted to be or were waiting to be asked. And that was what factor differentiates those individuals who fall in line and obey orders issued by authority figures, even to the point of seriously harming another human being and those who do not obey and follow their own inner voice. It boils down to an unknown, <laughs> unquantified um, individual conscience. Uh, you know, we have been created to be able to make choices. We can make choice for good, or we can make choice for evil. We can choose to be obedient sheep, or we can choose to be disobedient and face the consequences, but to be in line with our inner moral sense. And, you know, after the Holocaust, there have been many, many psychologists who tried to figure out, to study what made the difference, what caused some Germans, some Polish people, some Italian people to risk their lives and to help their neighbors, Jewish neighbors, in the time of their need when they really and truly risk their own lives. And you know what? After all the interviews and all the studies, they came up with zero connecting factor. Wow. It didn't matter what education they had. It didn't matter whether they followed religious prescriptions or not. None of it was the thing that they could say, uh-huh. If we could just train people on this, in this method, then, you know, everything would be fine. 
So it's left to the individual, you know, and everything about totalitarian regimes, communist regimes, all kinds of dictatorial regimes is that they want to eliminate the individual factor. They want to reduce the value of the individual, put all the emphasis on the, quote, the greater good, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to sacrifice for the greater good for your neighbor. That's nonsense. That is really anti-religious. Your conscience should be your guide. I survived as a young child after I was in the concentration camp for three years. By then I was six and a half when I was rescued. I survived because I was able to discern people individual people whom I could trust to help me because I knew I couldn't survive on my own. I was little and I did not have the wherewithal. I knew that I had to find kind-hearted people whom I could trust. And that reliance on my own assessment proved me right and saved my life. I had Christian family who helped me in Romania, took me into their home for three months because I was sick and very unhappy sitting all by myself while the other children were having a meal, whatever. And uh, yeah, and I found families that helped. I looked for families, essentially. Now, you know, when the COVID draconian measures were issued and the masking, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, these children are being denied their natural ability to assess people. They can't see their affect. That's a terrible deprivation. As a matter of fact, some of the little ones, they never even learned to pronounce words right because they didn't see the mouths forming vowels and consonants. This is a very premeditated, uh, sadistic kind of measure, if you think about it, especially from a child's perspective. Absolutely. Children were taught not to trust others. That's the other part. And I survived because I entrusted my life to strangers. Wow. What, what a profound juxtaposition you just made there in, in, in between these two situations. And to go, I just want to wrap up that section where to, to go back to what differentiates the people who fall in line and those who disobey, there is, there, are, there is no agreement that it has to do with race, creed, class, education. It has to do with a willingness and, a, and an ability to, to, to look into your heart and follow your conscience. But simultaneously, because we need to work co- collaboratively and not as individuals, the, these crises develop, help us develop, um, ideally help us develop the ability to learn how to discern who's a trustworthy ally and who's not. And to, to juxtapose that with a whole group, like countless children who have been denied years worth of, of value, a valuable learning window in which they can pick up facial gestures, tics, tones of voice, et cetera, because of the masking. It's, it's, it's sadistic is the absolute ideal word. And if I may ask you, since you, since you mentioned a little bit about it there, could, 
for, for listeners who may not have heard the story or aren't yet familiar with you, could you give us like as much or as little information you want to tell us about the experience of, of being in a concentration camp and, and escaping and going from there? Well, we were uh, herded into a concentration camp in Ukraine. It was not a death camp, but death was always hovering over us because there were lists. The periodic lists were put out, and if you were put on the list, you were sent either to a uh, slave labor camp or a death camp. So that, you know, starvation and fear were the greatest weapons. This was not an organized, you know, military kind of uh, camp. We were left to starve, essentially. That was, nothing was handed out. Nothing was uh, given. Um, But, you know, people were dying all over the place. And my father died uh, of typhus, which was an infectious disease that was rampant in all the concentration camps and the ghettos because of the lack of sanitary facilities and starvation and cold, all of those things um, created a, a deadly atmosphere. Um, I was rescued when my mother learned that, and this was quite late, this was in 1944, when they were getting ready to essentially eliminate all those who still were alive, all Jews who were still alive. But there was um, a rescue mission for some Jewish orphans. Um, And so my mother lied, put me on the list as an orphan to save my life. And so I left on one of the cattle trains that continued to bring millions of Jews to the death camps. Um, I, along the way, they actually allowed us to get off to relieve ourselves, something they never allowed those whom they were shipping to the camps. And when we got back into the car, this one girl, she was older than the rest of us. She might have been 18 or 19, I don't know, but she was a little older than the rest of us. Well, she came back with a baby. She found a baby in the ditch. Wow. And she wouldn't let go of the baby. But they wouldn't let her keep it, no matter what. They, they beat her off the car with the baby. And I, and I watched in horror because I knew, I knew that both she and the baby were going to be, were going to die. I, I knew that. Either they'd be shot or just be left to freeze and starve. And I was extremely horrified by it because I knew then and there that I couldn't do that. I, somehow or other, I felt that she, what she was doing, she was sacrificing herself that it was something noble, but at the same time, it won't end well. Mm -hmm. And if today, if I had to stake my life on it, I'd say, yeah, that they probably did uh, die. Absolutely. There was not, you know, there was no way they could survive. But um, that kind of duality, you know, is something I guess that a, is just with me. Uh, 
It's in me. It's not something I was taught. Absolutely. Um, I, I can't. I, I, uh, please, please continue. I'm just, no, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm, no, I'm just processing what you said, but I know you want to get, we'll get to the point where you were able to um, show your own level of discernment and figuring out how to get to safety at this point. Well, you know, the, the train then took us back to Romania. This was a ruse, you know, with the Romanian government, because by then in 1944, the Romanians distanced themselves from the Nazis because they realized that the Nazis were losing the war. So this was sort of a way to try to buy some goodwill or whatever, but I'm sure that money was involved, you know, for, to rescue the children. And we were ultimately en route to Palestine at that time, which later became the state of Israel. Um, but for a period of about 10 months, I was a child in transit. And I was kind of from one family to another to another. But eventually, uh, en route to the harbor city in Romania, um, I befriended a family on the train. And when we got to Constanza, that's the name of the city, uh, there were three small boats waiting for us. And people were assigned to one of the three boats. They read out the names. And I was assigned to the boat with all the orphan children. But I refused to get on that boat, no matter what. I absolutely refused. I cried and cried. And I had I suppose they would have called it a temper tantrum, but I wouldn't get on that boat no matter what. And I was, everyone embarked, and I was left alone on the dock, sitting on my tiny valise, and just crying my heart out, but I wouldn't go. And uh, for whatever, miraculously, they gave in to me and let me go with the family that I wanted to be with because I trusted that they would take care of me and I didn't want to be on the boat with the children. Well, um, that first night out at sea, uh, I was asleep because I had been very seasick and finally fell asleep. So I didn't witness the horror. Uh, but a a submarine torpedoed the boat with all the children. There were no survivors. None of the children survived. And I found out about it the next morning. Everybody was still in shock and you know, horror. And I didn't say one word. I didn't say one word to anyone. But I thought to myself, I was right. I was right not to get on that boat. But uh, I also felt a pang of guilt. Sure. Because I was glad to be alive. Absolutely. So what would you assign that sense of that instinctual feeling, that gut feeling, like, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you developed this ability to, to uh, kind of scope out situations and find ways to keep yourself safe. Did you, can, can you name or assume what it was that told you this vision, don't get on that boat? No, absolutely not. No, uh, I don't think I, could identify anything like that specifically. I just knew I didn't want to go where I was told, and so I wouldn't. That oh, that act of disobedience saved my life. And although I haven't dwelled on it much during my lifetime, when I can see, though, that whenever push comes to shove and I my gut tells me, 
the opposite of what the authorities tell me, I'll go with my gut anytime. Good for you. <laughs> it's, it served you well. As even in the face of unspeakable tragedy, you know, there's no, there's no doubt that this this uh, instinctual urge to question and make up your own mind has has guided you in many many ways in your life. And th- there's so much we could cover, but I'm since since we're on this story, I want to talk about. Be you being guided most recently to putting together a five-part documentary series mm-hmm. that about talking with, I mean, I've seen it. So talking with so many other people, it's, it's not just you, but making the, the, the parallels and the connections that I, that we mentioned in the earlier part of the conversation. So please feel free to tell the audience about the document docu-series, um, your your experience making it um have you made films in the past like what what was what was the um ultimate motivation to just say i'm making this movie and it and doing it such an excellent job and having it out there now available for people to watch and learn from well i'll tell you what i what i realized well first of all as you asked before whether i've been criticized for my stand and so forth What I realized um, during these three years uh, uh, is that those of us who survived, we have a duty. There has to be a reason for it. I didn't go near that before ever, but I realized that we have a duty. And lo and behold, many other survivors feel the same way. Um, I felt that we not only, first of all, we are at a point where we're afraid that we might be the last generation to remember. Sure. Uh, but that's only part of it because to remember just for our own memory is not good enough. We have to, we have to warn. Our duty is to warn when we perceive ominous signals that are reminiscent to the stages that led up to the final solution. And that is where this comes in. And I felt, well, let's see, let me see if I can find other survivors and do a documentary. The reason for a documentary, which no, I'd never done that before. I've just been in in a few, but I have never done that. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes you plunge in to, <laughs> to do things that you haven't done before. Absolutely. And uh, I did this in a very, very unorthodox way. Uh, people told me, you know, you have to put a script together and, and uh, all the episodes and have it all. And I said, no, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to let people who I interview, just talk. They will, t- they will lead the story. I'm not pre, uh, you know, predetermining beginning, middle, and end. No. And that's how we did it. Um, I interviewed some 32 people so far. And I just let them talk. They knew who I was. They trusted me uh, as to, you know, the purpose. And they just told what they were feeling, what they were thinking, and what they had gone through. So this, although we have uh, doctors and scientists as well, but the stars of the series are the people, the survivors, children of survivors, children of victims, and grandchildren 
of survivors and of victims. And we have a whole array also of uh, German people, uh, some of whom had family members who were in concentration camps as political prisoners, some who helped um, hide Jews. Uh, we have the nephew of the two founders of the White Rose. They were young medical students, Sophie and Hans Scholl. Uh, we have a um, woman who was a docent, a guide at the Dachau uh, Holocaust Memorial, who was fired because she spoke out against vaccine mandates. Wow. So, and we, and the people are from all over the globe. And we have several, quite a few Israelis uh, who are the most critical about the Israeli government um, policy with COVID. So it's quite a, an array. And they speak, you know, unlike any of the Holocaust movies, the many, you know, there have been quite a few, you know, multi-million dollar productions. None of them dealt with the facilitators, the corporate facilitators and perpetrators yeah. of the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, who, and the importance of it is they didn't actually go away. They continue to be prominent today. Yeah, like it's called Never Again is Now Global. And to live up to a, a well-known phrase like never again requires absolutely to be able to have the stomach to find the 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 on the links from the past to the present in terms of <clears throat> who was facilitating this, as you said, it's not a pleasant picture. It's not a pretty picture. It may, it may point at companies and governmental organizations that will, would cause surprise or pain to people. But I, I love about your film or docu-series, perhaps to phrase it more correctly, is that, is that you, you basically pull no punches and as you just said, you go where previous Holocaust films, whether it was documentaries or feature films, don't go before. And I also yeah. love, I love that you said, I interviewed this many people so far, which implies that this, this is an ongoing project. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, that's a positive for all of us. And it, it, I love also this sense of duty that you described, because when I, when I mentioned on my Substack that I was going to interview you, people were curious to know what helped you stay motivated and maintain your fighting spirit in all you've seen and all you've been through and all these slings and arrows that you've faced from probably even friends and family. And I feel like you partially explain that with, with this sense of mission and purpose and duty that you have adhered to because people might hear this and think, oh, there's, here's Vera's story about the Holocaust and here's Vera's story about what she's doing now. But there's many years in between where you're doing stuff like starting the Alliance for Human Research Protection. And you've been doing this ongoing work for decades. So I, I'm just, it, you, I'm going to let you answer the question, but is, would you say that's what keeps you, this fighting spirit alive in you, this duty, this sense of duty that was instilled in you all the way back at three, four, five, six years old? Well, you know, it was not instilled by anyone. I wasn't taught this. Uh, I wasn't trained to do this. This is where my own conscience led me. Okay. Uh, you know, as much as we have stressed, you know, the importance of education and all that, look where education has gotten us now. That the most educated people among us, the ones with the university degrees, PhDs, double in some cases and all that. And where are they and where are the, in comparison to the blue collar workers? Yep. We have the most 
in some sense mindless many decades of educational conditioning to defer to authority. That's what what this whole COVID um, debacle has, has shown. The ones that remain closed-minded despite the casualties that are just beyond, you know, I mean, just think about it. More people have been harmed by these injectables than all the other vaccines for 30 years. And yet people, including family members, don't want to connect the dots. When when a teenager dies of myocarditis, that never happened before. Or if it did, it was one really in ten million. Yep. And now, now they're they're training people. Well, you know, you might have a, as if it's a normal thing, the new normal. No, that's not normal. It, it's. It's a tragedy that people are putting blinders on their eyes, not wanting to see the truth. Yeah. And I love about your documentary and basically your entire philosophy and way of life is, is to constantly connect these dots where it, it's so easy to point the accusing finger of blame elsewhere. We can, in this generation, sit and smugly point at the quote-unquote good Germans, but not shine a light or, on our own behaviors or look in the mirror at ourselves and how susceptible we are to similar tactics. Whether someone wants to hear that, that a phrase like similar tactics or not doesn't change the fact that the tactics are similar. And I'm I'm going to jump to something else you said at that Nuremberg 75 speech, where, where which really brings us up into present day and connects so many dots. But this again, this is from your speech for the audience. You mm-hmm. said you, humanity is currently under siege by the global heirs of the Nazis. A posse of ruthless, interconnected global billionaires have gained control over national and international policy-setting institutions. And then you describe their di- diabolical agenda as overthrowing democracy and Western civilization, depopulation, eliminating nation states and establishing a one world government, eliminating cash and establishing one digital currency and injecting digital IDs and artificial intelligence capabilities into every human being. So you've now connected from from all the way back Romania in the early 40s to transhumanism globally today. So as you lived through so much, did you ever imagine you would see it reaching this point, this digital digitalization of the manipulation and the propaganda and the control? Never. Never. I never expected to bear witness again to the effort to demolish civilization. And um, the today the weapons are far more sophisticated and far more insidious. Because uh, this time around, you won't have concentration camps surrounded by electrified barbed wire. They don't need that. You won't have <laughs> tattoos burnt into the skin. Those were IBM identification numbers, by the way. Uh, It'll be digital IDs and they might be inserted into our bodies through injection. Um, The surveillance technology today is something that the Nazis could have only dreamed of. Everything can be done remotely. You wouldn't even know who it is that's watching you. Who it is that will turn off your bank account. You won't see them. It'll just be anonymous, all digitally. Wow. So as you describe this, with with the 
ability to look at it from this with the context of all this life history and study and hard work that you've done, what do you say to people today who are willing to even listen to this podcast and willing to stretch their minds and say, there's more going on than I'm allowing myself to believe? What, what, what do people do in 2023 to make sure that when we say never again, we mean it and never again is a real actual achievable and attainable goal. Like besides watching your incredible documentary, and I'll put the link in the show notes for people to find, but what's, what is your general advice for people listening who want to be part of the group of people who make some of the most important changes in human history? Well, what I would say is what I would remind people, which is very different from um, time under the Nazis, which is, that whereas the effort to censor all information um, in the mainstream media and the journals, the scientific journals are all controlled, uh, nevertheless, the Internet opened up a whole array of hundreds of platforms that... You know, the genuine, conscientious doctors, scientists, lawyers, and people, just people, are transferring information for anyone and everyone who bothers to simply click a few times to get there. Just as I found, you know, various groups so can you. They're there. And the information is there. The only thing is that the credible, the real sources of information, of truth, they're being called disinformation mm-hmm. because we challenge and threaten the cash flow. Uh, the other thing people need to, to really understand that everything, every single thing that we were told beginning March 2020 about COVID, every single part of it was a lie. Amen. No one it. now says anymore about, we'll flatten the curve in yeah. two weeks. Yeah. Uh, 85 million Americans were going to die. Um, You have to lock down in order to avoid the spread. Whether someone has symptoms or not, they can spread disease. It never happened. It never will. And altogether, and then the masks, as as if these masks are, were, mandated for anything other than to show your willingness to obey like a slave. Yep. Slaves used to be masked. It's a sign of slavery, a sign of obedience. Why people who have a God-given right to be free will so easily comply with really, I mean, Dr. Zevzelenko, who saved thousands of lives with medical protocol that the government said was illegal. He called the masks face diapers. Who would want to have face diapers? Why breathe carbon dioxide instead of oxygen? which really the masks for little children and for elderly with all kinds of respiratory um, frailties, that's criminal. So all of that was a lie. The other part that was a lie was those of us in New York remember how, oh, my gosh, the hospitals are overwhelmed. The hospitals in, and they're they're in Central Park. That's what relatives in Israel told me that hospitals are in Central Park. I said what? 
All of it was a lie. All of it. Yep. Uh, I first got wind of that lie when when I saw some videos done by people on their iPhone, went into a few hospitals and showed how it was empty. Most of the hospitals were empty. There were a few who were overcrowded, but that's because that's where everybody was sent to give this impression of of being overwhelmed. And the fact is that, you know, the Javits Center was outfitted as, as a hospital. It wasn't used. Same thing with a battleship yep. outfitted as a hospital, including um, operating facility, everything. It wasn't used because it was a lie. This was all to generate and maintain a state of fear. And that is what Goebbels said was the most potent weapon that he used. Fear. You hold people in fear and you can make them do anything. Well, except for those of us who trust our own judgment. Yep, and there's more of us than they ever imagined. They overplayed their hand. They underestimated how many people are willing to to ask questions. And I also love to believe how many more people are willing to still change their mind and still hear interviews like this and say, you know, she's right. I need to, I need to own up. All right. So I got scared and believe some, some things that weren't true, that it's never too late to come, to come back to trusting yourself. And I just want to say thank you because I feel there's so many things I could thank you for, but in this conversation, two things that jump out at me is this sense of inspiration of trusting your, your, conscience and your intuition as to who's lying to you and who is trustworthy and could help like be a comrade or an ally in a time of crisis. And I also love when you talked about making the movie that sometimes you just take a plunge and just go in and try stuff. And that's what we need. We need people now willing to try new things and willing to try new mindsets and challenge this, this, uh, this totalitarianism that is rapidly becoming transhumanism, but they haven't completed it yet. And I, I firmly believe they've underestimated how many of us are truly believed never again. And for that, I can't say thank you enough, Vera, for the example you've been in, the, just the, the vibrant ongoing uh, motivation that you offer all of us, but just continuing to get these messages out there, evolving with the new information, breaking into a new field like filmmaking and just showing people that, that, that having a sense of duty and mission and purpose is one of the most powerful things that could, could drive a meaningful life. And each one has that ability. They just have to choose to go along with their inner voice. Amen to that. Vera, I could, probably talk to you for two hours, but I appreciate the time you've given us here and I appreciate all you've done and will continue doing. And I very much hope we can stay in touch. Thanks very much. I hope so too. And remember, resist. It's the only way we can win this one. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you are getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and substack is. 
So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word. And let's get back to the show. In closing, I'd really like to focus one more time on a couple points that Vera made, um, which I touched on as I was wrapping up with her. I loved how she talked about that they have been unable to assign a specific reason why some people recognize evil and propaganda manipulation and will stand up even if it means putting themselves at risk, except that it's just that some people choose to follow their conscience. So let's accept the reality that everyone, virtually everyone, has a conscience. So the path here is to get in touch with what you're feeling and what you're seeing, not what the outside world is trying to impose upon you. Like, for example, Oscar Wilde once said, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Now, you don't have to read that as an insult because Take it as an honor because you are being relentlessly targeted by a nonstop program of propaganda and manipulation in the name of getting you to not be in touch with your own conscience. So the ultimate form of revolution now is to shut down what the powers that shouldn't be are trying to turn us into. And then the second part, which I love so much because Vera is someone that's like in her mid-80s and she just directed a five-part docuseries. And I asked her, had you made movies before? And she said, no, but I just plunged right in. That's what we need now. We need people who are guided by their conscience, who are willing to try something new. And I'll I'll say to you that I never podcasted in my life until November of 2021. And I'm pretty proud of how I've gone so far. And this is episode 74. You got to be willing to just learn stuff on the fly, make mistakes, figure it out, and then ultimately follow your conscience and make the decisions that seem right for you. And that very simplistic, eternal guideline and blueprint is what's going to get us out of this mess and put us back on a path towards staying human. So as always, as a starting point, I urge you to keep your guard up.